Happy Monday to you, one and all, across New Mexico and throughout the interwebs. This is New Mexico and Focus, the podcast for Monday, April 11th of 2022. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS Channel 5.1. And we have a lot to bring to you today. Excited to bring it to you. And we're going to start with our most recent line opinion panel. And just to remind you who that was, it was an all-attorney group. Just happened to work out that way uh, this week. But we have Serge Martinez. He's a law professor at UNM. We also have Sophie Martin, who is a regular on the line. And we have Justine Fox-Young, also a former state representative. And a big topic, and especially one near and dear to the heart of Serge Martinez, if you've been listening and following for a while, is evictions. We know this has been a big problem in New Mexico, uh, in part as Serge has taught us all with how quickly the eviction process could happen here in New Mexico. We also know that there's been a moratorium on evictions in place for a while now through the pandemic. But as of April 1st, The uh, moratorium on evictions for non-payment is now done, and so evictions for non-payments can start again in Bernalillo County. But we also know from talking to Surge over the last couple years that it doesn't mean that evictions have totally stopped up till now. Uh, Landlords finding other reasons and other ways to evict people. Again, it's an ongoing problem, especially as we know our housing and rental market is in pretty dire straits right now. So uh, folks who are barely scraping by really affected uh, by this. And once you've been evicted, it makes it that much harder to find your next uh, place to rent. So wanted to find out about what we're doing in terms of that moratorium being lifted. Is there a flood of new evictions? Uh, What we need to be addressing what did we learn in the pandemic. So let's jump right now to the line opinion panel and host Gene Grant. Life is slowly starting to move back towards a pre-pandemic normal, but unfortunately for some that means a return to the harsh reality of non-payment evictions. Bernalillo County ended its moratorium on April 1st, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic. Let's bring in the line opinion panel to talk about the impacts of this. We're still waiting to see what landlords do in the next few weeks, but we know there were a few dozen eviction hearings scheduled at Metro Court in Albuquerque. Now that's according to Source New Mexico. Here's the question, are landlords, Sophie, going to rush to evict tenants now that this stay is over? Well, I think it's worth noting that mm-hmm. that while evictions have resumed in some parts of the states it, it, of the state, there is kind of a rolling re- re- resume. So each month on the first, we're going to see more parts of the state where the the moratorium is lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we haven't, from what I understand, seen a mad rush to the courthouse. Um, that doesn't mean that it won't happen, um, and it may be that that in some areas of the state that the backlog for lack of a better way to put it is more intense than in others it's it's hard to say right now um but you know actually i will say one of my fellow panelists um gave a great interview recently about this and talking about how much of the eviction backlog may have already kind of 
run its course. It may have gone through the system because there were other ways to remove tenants, um, even in even if you couldn't do it on the basis of non-payment. So right. I'm going to kind of throw that to Serge. Mm -hmm. Serge, go ahead. That's an interesting uh, little point there. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a mistake to, to say, a misapprehension that I think a lot of folks have, that there were no evictions over the past two years. Mm -hmm. There were right. thousands and thousands of evictions. They just weren't for non-payment in, yeah. in court, right? You could get evicted for, for you know, violating the lease in some other way. Or the landlord could just say, I'm not renewing this lease, and you have to get out, right? How many thousands and thousands of New Mexico families lost their homes because of that? Mm -hmm. We don't know. They never went through the eviction courts because as soon as the Supreme Court stepped in, which by the way, more power to them, I appreciate their focus on this, right? It no longer became this efficient eviction machine. And so you have to move, look to other other avenues. But there, yeah, if we're saying, you know, the dam, the dam is about to come down and the there'll be a wave, I'm not I don't think that's the case because there's been a lot of leaks in the dam over the, you know, it's more like a fence. Mm -hmm. Again. Oh, for the last couple of years um, that has that has allowed anybody who has a little bit of savvy to get rid of just about any tenant they wanted to get rid of mm -hmm. for any, you know, even if it, they had to sort of disguise the actual rationale. Right. Hey, Serge, let me stay with you on this. It's kind of a big deal. The U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland recognized your department, UNM Law, for its yeah. rapid response addressing the pandemic housing and eviction crisis. Can you tell us what that honor was like and what you, your colleagues and your students, what did you guys do to help keep people housed? I mean, we were, yeah, we, we were really honored to get that recognition yeah. um, and really excited that there's been so much focus recently on housing stability and the role that lawyers and law professionals and law students can, mm -hmm. can play in helping people remain stably housed. Um, I'll be honest, we were doing this before the pandemic, we're gonna keep doing this, right? We sort of increased our efforts to try to work with folks around the state around um, getting folks access to the assistance that there is and, and making policy change. But housing was a, you know, there was a housing crisis before the pandemic and post pandemic, and we're still working on it. Mm -hmm. But it's always nice to have your work recognized. And my amazing students have been, you know, throwing themselves into this from day one of, they, them hearing about this, but especially, you know, in the first couple of weeks of this pandemic, they were like, what can we do? How can we do it? And mm -hmm. the, the cast has changed, but the spirit of diving in and trying to make sure folks don't lose their housing in this time has been, hasn't let up. I've been really proud of them. Good for you. Congrats to you and all your colleagues and the right. students on that. You know, that's kind of a big deal. Good for you guys. Hey, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Justine, you know, a question here, for those people who are facing eviction, there is federal assistance available, we all know that. And we all know if it goes unused, the state has to return that money to Washington. So my, my beef here is, is there enough knowledge about what's out there? Should the city or state be doing more to let people know that there is help available? Because honestly, you look around Albuquerque, you really don't see a whole lot of paid sort of notices saying, hey, if you need help, you know, come over here. Should we, we be doing yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, it's a little hard to know. And as Serge says, mm -hmm. this is not a new phenomenon. It sounds like, and the hope is that maybe we've become a little bit more efficient at connecting people who need resources with resources. Maybe the government has gotten better at, at targeting folks who really do need help. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, in my practice, I think that's true. I mean, I have had clients who have not had too much trouble getting assistance. And I think and there's a report in the journal today about about funding going out. 
I, I, I guess it's a little too early to tell how much better we've gotten at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do think, you know, COVID has thrown a, a spotlight on this longstanding problem and, and, and difficulty. And I, I guess I hope that rather than just create a new entitlement for the sake of creating it or throwing money at the problem, that we are getting better at really identifying the best way to, to get resources to people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a moratorium is one thing, but actually figuring out how to, how to help people get stabilized who need it. And people like, you know, Serge's clinic and, and the lawyers and students um, and other folks who, who work on this and the experts in this area, I hope are getting heard, you know, when it comes to the, the legislative fixes and changes, because, um, Mm -hmm. Because the, the money needs to get in the right hands That's right. if we're going to be spending it. That's right. You know, the idea of going back to Washington just gives me a stomach ache. I just, we got to spend this money. <laughs> hey, Sophie, interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you know about this. There's an Albuquerque advocacy group calling for rent control. It's an amazing situation when you think about it here in Albuquerque. Should cities in New Mexico consider such drastic action? I mean, you know, you considering know, other rent, rising costs? I, well, okay. So I will say rent control can be quite complex. Um, and so I would say it's not a, it's not a quick fix. It's not a, um, it's not even necessarily a sure thing. We see in cities that have had rent control for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, New York City comes to mind almost immediately that sometimes there are some unintended consequences. But given the scope of the problem, it seems to me that all options should be investigated mm-hmm. and should be on the table. And mm-hmm. that, that certainly is one of them. Yeah. Serge, let me get you a cut on that rent control. I'm dying to hear your opinion on this subject. <laughs> well, the first thing you'll hear when you talk about it is people say there's a state law that prohibits any, any municipality from implementing it. That's right. Um, I've analyzed that, and I think that that's actually not consistent with the home rule um, at provisions of our Constitution. And so I think, you know, a, a, a municipality that wanted to, like Sophie was saying, try it and you know shouldn't take any options off the table right rent control it it is you know often a dirty word in some quarters and and certainly has had you can you know whatever position you want to support you can point to evidence to that effect Mm -hmm. but i do think it can be an effective tool to to keep people to stop destabilizing housing and allow folks to be able to stay where they are build up you know some political capital for where they are, have some stability that helps them with work, education and whatnot, mm-hmm. and uh, to sort of decommodify housing uh, a little bit. And so I'm I'm certainly intrigued by it. Um, I do know that it would be a, a massive, massive battle that anyone wanted to try it. But mm-hmm. I, I do believe that um, there's legal cover for it, despite what our uh, state statutes say about that. See, that would be an interesting change of events, though. I think I've had this discussion with folks, and folks are convinced that the state would not allow it. That would be a very interesting change if your research shows otherwise. That's that's fascinating. Um, Justine, let me kind of jump to you for a quick second here. Not just a New Mexico problem. Our state, just below the national average in its share of cost burden renters who devote about a third of their income to housing costs. some people it's just not sustainable to have so much of our money going to keeping a roof over our head. Is there a federal solution to this housing problem that kind of covers that a little bit? No, I mean, it's a complicated problem yeah. that relates to our tax burden and the cost of living here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, temporary Band-Aids, which never remain temporary, like rent control and, and, 
you know, changing the regulatory landscape will only make it more complicated and destabilize housing, you know, in the long term. So no, I don't think there's a federal solution. I think we need to look back at all the traditional, you know, ways to um, to to let the market work, you know, to permit job growth, and you know, to deal with the the social factors and influences that 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 make it hard for folks to make it. I mean, it's it's a long list. Yeah. But no, the feds can't fix that. It's complicated. Problem. That's right. That's right. It's equally. Uh, go ahead, Serge. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, I do. I 100% agree with Justine that there has to be a complex. Um, response to to this and like you know rent control is probably a short-term uh, solution and I understand what Justine said right mm -hmm. short term is a is a myth in many cases but that goes hand in hand with creating more housing creating more public housing creating more access to the to the rental assistance and whatnot and that no one thing is there's no there's no such thing as a silver bullet it requires a complex sustained thoughtful innovative, approach to it but i do think that there are ways to approach it i've i've you know articulated thoughts and plans many many times sure. and yet as if yet no one's followed up you know taking me up on it well but, you're just you're so far ahead of the game man that's we're catching right, up I'm to you that's what's going else. on here <laughs> thanks again to our line panel as always this week be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our facebook twitter or instagram pages I know I am loving the spring weather, even the winds, although they make me super scared about the fire danger uh, this summer, and I know it does for a lot of you. We're going to have a lot of coverage of that in the coming weeks. And, of course, one thing that's tied into all of that is how much of that snowpack melts and trickles down to us, especially along the Rio Grande. And so we wanted to know what uh, scientists, meteorologists, think the outlook is going to be this year. We know it's been not great for several years now. Uh, climate change, temperatures rising, extended drought, all these things working against that spring runoff. Uh, but our Arland correspondent, Laura Paskus, wanted to get down to the nitty-gritty of the numbers and what researchers have to say about all of this and how they go about uh, making predictions and forecasts around the runoff. And long story short here, we need all the moisture we can get. Hopefully we'll get some good uh, rains here in the coming weeks. But uh, we also need to, as we've talked about a lot in our land recently, have to honestly readjust what our normal in terms of moisture really is because it is just absolutely unequivocally getting drier. So we were very fortunate to be joined by Angus Goodbody, and so let's turn it over to Laura and Angus for an introduction and an explanation of the research on the spring runoff forecasts. Angus Goodbody, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks. So the NRCS, that's the Natural Resources Conservation Service, issues spring forecasts for Western rivers, including the Rio Grande. How does the Rio Grande look this spring? Uh, this spring, we're looking at below median stream flow for most of the, of the watersheds in the Rio Grande. It, it depends a bit on which part we're talking about as a whole. The main stem down in central New Mex Mexico is expected to have a little less than 70% of median um, 
then that that would be for the April through July runoff period. Um, but there is quite a bit of variability. Uh, the good news is that the the headwaters in Colorado probably are in the best shape right now. So still not at median um, or typical values, but um, but not so far below. So when you're compiling these forecasts, what are like what are the different factors you consider? So our our forecast modeling system is it's a statistical method that we use. Um, we also work in conjunction with uh, with NOAA National Weather Service, and, and they use a process simulation model. So we actually have a few different sources of information um, available to us. Uh, I'll talk about the NRCS modeling system, though. Again, we really rely mostly on um, historical and current observations of snowpack and precipitation. Um, and we collect most of those data through the Snowtel network, which is our high elevation mountain uh, ground-based observing system. And so can you talk about how snowpack relates to streamflow and also how that has kind of changed? Sure. So, you know, in a lot of the western U.S. we depend on, on on water from the mountains, and that water is largely sourced as snowpack. So, um, you know, accumulating through the winter, we tend to have deep um, seasonal snowpacks through a lot of the upper Rio Grande Basin, and also in New Mexico in the higher peaks of the Sangre de Cristos, um, and the other high high mountains uh, in that area locally. Um, so. The whole premise for being able to forecast is the fact that we do accumulate this snowpack high up in the mountain ahead of time, so we're able to assess exactly how much is up there, or at least an index of how much is up there. Um, and then we know that that is going to run off later in the springtime once the temperatures warm up, et cetera. So it's really based on that natural snowpack reservoir that can be measured in advance to give us an indication of, of what to expect later in the spring and summer runoff season. One of the things that we've talked about a bunch on our show is how a, a, even a normal or above average snowpack doesn't necessarily translate to robust downstream flows. Can you explain why that is? Sure. So, and this gets, I, you, you asked a little bit about the change too in the previous question. So there's no question that, you know, our, the amount of snow we have in our mountains is changing and has, has changed, you know, considerably in the last few decades. Um, we can detect that just with our ground-based measurements. Um, there's also a feedback between how much snow is in the mountains and, and what actually runs off. And it's not just simply, oh, there's less snow, so we have less water. There's, there's other processes in play here related to forests, transpiration and evaporation and soil moisture conditions coming into a season um, that seem to be exacerbated recently with you know multiple years of dry conditions. So we have deficits entering the season that may be larger than what we're used to um, even in the more recent historic record. Um, so I will say, uh, yeah, so if, if you think about less snow in the mountains, obviously that's going to mean less volume. It also can mean different timing of the runoff as well. And this is this is an issue because we have built our systems around an expectation of runoff at certain times of the year. So potentially as we have warming and maybe more of the storms in the winter transition to more uh, liquid precipitation rather than snow, um, we can actually have 
a similar amount of runoff, but coming at different times of the year. Now that is not what we've been seeing most in the most recent decade in the Rio Grande. In general, it's been just quite dry. So overall, uh, the main force for runoff is going to be how much precipitation of, of any variety that we get throughout the year. And so as long as that remains low, uh, we'll continue to have low runoff. Um, I guess to, to talk more about the stream flow and, and we do see we we have seen a significant reduction every 10 years we update our stream flow normals um, and basically that is a 30 year uh, average and median that we calculate for the, the seasonal target periods that we forecast for. So again, that's typically either April, July or March, July or the standard target periods in the Rio Grande. And uh, what we did see across the board um, in this recent update was less total volume of water running off during that time period. So our actual normals have lowered which means that our interpretation of, you know, 100% of normal is actually less than it was for the previous 10 years. So I'm interested in talking a little bit more about that. You've noted in your forecasts earlier in the year that people should understand that 100% of normal might not mean the same thing as it did last year. Can you explain that? Yeah, so it's, it's basically, it feeds off of what I was just talking about in the sense that if, if we have, let's say we have a, a watershed where uh, the 30 year normal is 100,000 acre feet. Um, and for the 1981 to 2010 period, was, which was our, our previous normal period, it might have been 120,000 acre feet. So there's been a 20,000 you know, 20, acre foot reduction, which is actually close to 20% reduction. Um, and so it's important if people are just looking at the percent of normal values to realize that that is scaled to the new normal. So if what we used to consider normal was, 100, was, was 120, we need to refocus and understand that 100% now actually means 100,000, not 120,000. So it's important to rescale. Right. So I wanted to jump back a little bit to some of the factors that you talked about, like uh, drier forests, for instance. Um, I'm also thinking about um, soil moisture and relative humidity and these sorts of things. When we're looking at these sort of cumulative impacts to a watershed, like how do we ever catch up? Do we ever catch up on some of these things or how long does it take to catch up? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure I have a, a decisive answer. I, it depends. It depends what happens in the future, also, always. And and of course, we're not. Um, one thing in water supply forecasting, I think sometimes people think we have a better view of what the actual future weather is going to be like, and and that's not really the basis for our forecast. Our forecasts right now are still really based on historical relationships between snowpack and runoff, and. Um, you know, that's one of the concerns in the current environment. As the climate potentially changes, some of those relationships uh, may not be as strong as they once were. So we still don't have a great alternate method. So we still proceed with that, you know, using history to understand what's going to happen. And there, there still is a robust connection. It's not like those, the, you know, we still measure snow in the mountains and we still see uh, reasonable runoff based on those predictions. Um, 
but I guess uh, could you could you ask the last part of your question? I was trying to remember what else you asked. There. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm asking a question that's not fair to ask anybody, but I think so many of us want to know or understand how many good years would we right. need to ever catch up? You know, honestly, if things were wetter in the Rio Grande, it wouldn't necessarily take that long to catch up. I mean, the big question is, <clears throat> is that actually going to happen? Uh, and I, and and again, I, I do tend to look to history. I know we're, we're in a, a time of greater uncertainty with what the climate will be doing, you know, in the next decade or decades. Um, however, we can look back, um, particularly at our stream flow records, which in the in the Rio Grande area, honestly, go back 100 years or more in some cases and get an idea of um, what have things been like in the past. So as I mentioned, we update our normals every 30 years. I've actually gone back uh, 80 years and looked at 30-year increments through, through time to see what those cycles have looked like. And the reality is the Rio Grande has always gone through you know, long cyclical periods of wetter and drier periods. So in a sense, what we're experiencing now is not unprecedented. Of course, the reasons we, we may be experiencing may be unprecedented. So of course, that's, that's the concern right now. Right, and of course, we have so much more demand than in the past. Um, I'm Absolutely. Yeah, so, um, you know, we talk on our show a lot about how um, sort of the climate change impacts over the past few decades, in particular since the 70s when we've seen a couple degrees rise in temperature, we've certainly seen longer wildfire season, things like that. I'm curious, you've been doing forecasting in the Rio Grande Basin since 2009. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen and maybe, um, you know, are you surprised by any of these changes or the pace of these changes? You know, I mean, honestly, the Rio Grande, since I started forecasting in the late two th 2009, I think was when I first operationally began forecasting in the Rio Grande, it has, um, it's really been consistently dry for the last 10 plus years. I mean, there's been an odd year here or there where we've gotten to median or above, but that's been the anomaly. Um, there's also been a lot of impacts to the watersheds, particularly in, in Colorado, but other places too. And this has manifested in whether it be wildfire impacts or um, there's been a beetle kill situation as well. So we have places where the vegetation is being impacted on a, on a broad scale. And we know conceptually that that has an impact on the hydrology of those basins. Um, unfortunately, modeling that is difficult um, and so we still we still are using you know general relationships of snowpack to runoff, and it's it's hard to say exactly what those impacts are. We can look at a lot of research and understand that well when we remove canopy, there's actually multiple competing uh, impacts and forces. Like we actually might get more snow accumulating in certain areas, but we also might melt that snow more rapidly in the springtime. So that gets back to the you know, impacts on both volume and timing um, of the snowpack and runoff in the streams. So I'm curious, your final thoughts, what is one thing that you would like everyone to kind of keep in mind this spring and looking forward? So there's a lot of effort right now to, to improve our modeling. Um, 
And so one of the things that I would would mention as we transition to new technologies, whether that's you know remote sensing of snowpack or or other uh, hydrologic variables that we don't have great ground-based measurements of, is that it's going to take some time to integrate uh, these new ideas and new modeling approaches into operational forecasting. I know you know everybody wants a, an immediate response um, to the to the issues, and I mean it's it's certainly worth a lot of tension right now. Um, but the fact is that some of these changes take time, and it also one thing I really want to mention here: we do have some emerging technologies that are very promising, and and in the long run, absolutely will improve our ability to forecast runoff. But in the meantime, we need to continue to support our legacy and ground-based systems because there's a lot um, there's a lot of information as we transition to new systems that's still going to be needed. And in fact, the ground-based measurements are still critical for the research and development of many of those new systems. All right. Well, Angus Goodbody, thank you for helping keep us all informed. I look forward to your forecasts whenever they come out. Um, thanks for joining me today. All right. Thank you. Take care. talk about it all the time here in the podcast, but it's a great way to bring you content we just don't have time for on the weekly broadcast of New Mexico and Focus on New Mexico PBS, which of course is Friday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. We had a fascinating conversation this week in our Facebook Live with host Gene Grant. We were talking to a representative from Indefensive Animals who may have seen their name in the headlines recently, they put out a ranking of the worst zoos for specifically elephant enclosures. And lo and behold, the Albuquerque Biopark Zoo was ranked second worst. And again, we're talking about the elephants specifically here. We wanted to get down to uh, some detail about uh, what exactly went into the rankings and what the Albuquerque Biopark Zoo could do to fix some of that. And it's an interesting conversation. You're going to hear it in full now. It's a lengthy conversation. There's a lot tapped into this. And uh, while the Albuquerque Biopark uh, is especially dinged for the size of its enclosure and nearby highways that have a lot of noise that can be disturbing to the elephants, you're going to find out that really uh, it was the Albuquerque Biopark Zoo's turn to be on this list from this group in defense of animals because their underlying message is just that elephants are not animals that should be in captivity like this, even under the best of intentions, talking about breeding programs and conservation programs, but you just can't replicate the habitats that these animals would face in the wild. And as we know very well here in Albuquerque, uh, the breeding programs are also a risky uh, venture because of a herpes virus that affects uh, animals, uh, these elephants. And we lost two uh, young elephants in the last year, which is another thing in defensive animals points out. So again, not great news for the zoo. We all know and we, we love lots of things about the zoo. Uh, the elephants are often one of the favorite animals there. But in defense of animals, say it's time for us to move away from keeping these animals in zoos. Uh, instead, they'd like to see them go to sanctuaries where they have more room to roam. Uh, and these are animals that can, can walk up to 50 miles a day. 
So just to give you some perspective in all of this, you're going to hear a lot more about it and would love to hear what you think about it as well. Do you support keeping elephants at the Albuquerque Biopark Zoo? Would you like to see us move away from them? Where do you come down on it? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Let us know what you think. But here now is host Gene Grant and Brittany Michelson from In Defense of Animals. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Hey, guys, Facebook Live time. Thanks for joining us. Let me just hit that little button there. Uh, my name is Gene Grant. I'm joined today by Brittany Mickelson of Defense of An In Defense of Animals. That's a well-known organization um, in the United States. That's we're looking out for animal welfare across a number of places, including zoos. And as you might know, uh, we had a, quite the discussion a couple of weeks ago about the criticism leveled at the Albuquerque Biopark by the organization, where In Defense of Animals ranked our zoo's second worst for elephants in uh, habitats in the country of all the zoos out there. Uh, Brittany, I got a million questions. First of all, thank you for joining us. Tell us about the organization real quick, what you guys do and how long you've been doing it. Sure, so my name is Brittany Michelson and I am the Captive Animals Campaigner for In Defense of Animals, IDA. And the organization started back in 1983 and it's an international animal advocacy and protection organization mm -hmm. that is based in Northern California, but it's international. And we do work on behalf of animals in all different areas, all forms and types of animal exploitation. So animals who are exploited for food and for clothing and for entertainment and for testing, medicine and, and all of it, we, we cover everything. And we're a, a comprehensive organization. And my role is I run campaigns and advocacy for captive animals that is doing work on behalf of animals who are exploited in zoos, circuses, marine parks, the pet trade, and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of coverage. Um, I should note, uh, by the way, we did reach out to the biopark folks to join us in this discussion. They declined. Uh, perhaps we might be able to get them at another time. We're going to keep trying because we do want to hear their side of it. Um, elephants in particular, God, I got a million questions beyond Albuquerque's deal. I want to get later to a trend that I see forming nationally and internationally about our attitudes about elephant enclosures and such. But let me, let's start here with Albuquerque. What are the unique challenges uh, here in Albuquerque that you guys saw besides, talk about the criticism and, and how it just sort of stacks up against other zoos out there. Sure. So the main red flags about the Albuquerque Biopark Zoo was the fact that they had two very young elephants that died within a week in the winter. So they had a three-year-old elephant named Thorn who died on Christmas day. And then within a week, an eight-year-old elephant named Jasmine passed away. And they died of EEHV, which is the herpes virus strain that elephants contract. And, but the fact that the zoo had two very young elephants, they died extremely prematurely that caught our attention, not to mention the fact that every baby elephant that has been born at the Albuquerque Biopark has died from this disease, from EEHV. 
So there's something wrong here when we have multiple young, very young elephants passing away. And they have a breeding program at this zoo. So something is certainly amiss. That was a big red flag for us and, and prompted us to investigate further. We were wondering, well, why are these deaths repetitive? Why, are, why does this keep happening? Another major concern is the size of their enclosure. It's much too small for a herd of elephants. It is pretty barren and it's right next to a busy highway. So the elephants are constantly subjected to traffic noise. Uh, of course, the noise from the zoo spectators as well. And construction noises from expansion and, and projects within the zoo. And so these elephants really don't have any peace there. They're subjected to a lot of noise. And mm -hmm. the enclosure is restrictive. It, we observed stereotypical behaviors, behaviors that are indicative of stress. So elephants pacing and swaying and so forth. Mm -hmm. And oh. mm -hmm. those, are, those are the two major reasons, along with the fact that this zoo has a breeding program that is just replicating the issues I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. are, these, are these infant deaths that unusual compared to other zoos? Is it appreciably more? EEHV is found in, more often found in captive elephants. It has been more largely detected in zoo elephants, elephants that are captive in zoo environments. There are certain zoos that have more of an issue, certainly more of an issue than others. The Albuquerque Biopark is one of them. They, every elephant that's been born at this facility has, every baby has died. So there's a, a big issue going on here. And we would like to see them stop their breeding program and release the elephants that they have now to an accredited reputable sanctuary to live out the remainder of their lives in a much more natural, much more peaceful setting mm -hmm. and to close their elephant exhibit. That's what IDA is asking these zoos to do. It, elephants have no place in zoos. They are the largest land mammal, one of the most intelligent species on the planet. They're incredibly emotionally complex and they really suffer in zoos. Mm -hmm. This is the part I've been reading about a lot is the emotional part. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. You know, again, as a layperson, it's difficult to sort of separate the idea that, oh, I'm a patron. These elephants are so amazing. I just want to go see and bring my kids and all this and that. But I've learned a lot about, yeah, let's talk about from the bottom up, how much elephants communicate and feel the world literally through their feet, in the pads of their feet. And I, I was blown away reading some of this, honestly, because it really got across what you were saying. In a small enclosure, I don't understand how an elephant could have any kind of emotional nourishment if so much is communicated through their feet being in such a small enclosure. Am I off on that? Is that, is that a problem or am I misreading that? No, you're definitely correct. Um, elephants are very emotionally in tune and they have sensitive hearing. Mm -hmm. They feel vibrations, sound vibrations through their feet, seismic vibrations. And mm -hmm. 
they are definitely very limited in a zoo enclosure where they don't have the space to really interact the way that they choose to interact. They can't get space from each other when they want to and so forth. And like I mentioned earlier with the busy highway right beside the elephant enclosure at Albuquerque Biopark Zoo, the elephants are just subjected to a lot of noise and they, they really belong in a very expansive, peaceful setting where they can just enjoy a, a relaxing environment. Mm -hmm. I'll come to that in a quick sec for sanctuaries. That's an interesting point there. You know, this idea of, I, again, I want to expand on this idea of, of the sensitivity of elephant. There's such a rush to get elephants out of the zoo there is that the explosions and the gunfire are highly impactful on an elephant's hearing. Talk about their hearing and their capacity and what they're able to sort of glean and why we do have to be careful. Because when folks hear you say there's a busy road, <laughs> you know, they, I get that they think of it in human terms. You know what I mean? Like right. we deal with this all the time. Talk about that from an elephant's perspective, right. hearing, et cetera. Well, just in the way that many animal species have more acute hearing than, than humans, right. elephants hear in greater in a greater capacity than, than we do and for far greater distances. I don't know the exact range, uh, but they have a, a more acute sensitive hearing than we do. And so anything that is going on vibrationally, uh, certainly in Ukraine with you know, all of the effects of the war, mm -hmm. they're definitely impacted on a far greater scale than we are. And so, and they're sensitive and they get stressed and they, they can't escape it. They don't have mm -hmm. anywhere to go. You know, in the wild, they roam. They roam for miles and miles a day. And so in captivity, the elephants who are in captivity, the, the best possible scenario is to have them at sanctuaries where there's far more space, there's acres of land and a much more natural relaxing environment mm -hmm. where they can just be elephants and they can interact the way that they want to interact. They can choose who they want to socialize with and how they form their herds and so forth. Gotcha. Because that's another issue in zoos is that Elephants are very social, so they should never be alone. And there are certain zoos that have solitary elephants, and that's a big problem. Mm. But um, in social environments in zoos, sometimes they put elephants together that really they wouldn't choose to be together in a setting where they have that choice. They Because they don't always get along, just like with humans. We don't always get along with each other. And right. we should have the choice in, you know, in terms of who to socialize with. And that's just not really available to them in a zoo environment. Yeah. Um, my understanding is there are two sanctuaries in the country, one in Tennessee and one in the northwest part of, the, of our country. Do I have that right? Yes, uh, Tennessee and Northern California, the Elephant uh, Sanctuary of Tennessee and PAWS in Northern what, California. Oh, PAWS, right, that was it. Sorry about that. What makes up a sanctuary? Is there a certain minimum amount of acreage or... What would you folks consider as a, a, an appropriate hmm. sanctuary for elephants? That's a great question. I'm not sure in terms of numbers of actual acreage, what the requirement is or what the mm -hmm. parameter is. 
but basically it's a much more natural environment at zoos. There's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of fencing, there's a lot of artificial, even at some zoos they have uh, wire or some kind of artificial material wrapped around trees so that the mm. elephants don't destroy the foliage. And this, by the way, is also evident at Albuquerque Biopark. They have trees blocked off from the elephants so that the elephants, because elephants, they want to forage. They want to, you know, they, they're very strong. Their trunks can pull down branches and, and they should be able to do that. But they're often restricted from doing that in zoos. So at sanctuaries, they have much more space. It's just much more remote, much more remote environment more peaceful there they don't have all the, the visitors coming in like at the zoo there's so many people little kids screaming and people taking pictures and it's just it's really not pleasant for the elephants so a sanctuary is about the elephant's best interest sanctuaries put the animals first zoos mm -hmm. sell tickets and whether or not people want to believe it a zoo is a business they're selling tickets and they're you know, their mission is to, you know, make ticket sales. And so a lot mm -hmm. of times they will dupe the public into thinking that it's all about conservation. But, you know, when you dig deeper, there are a lot of issues with zoos. Yeah, well, well I'm going to come back to that conservation piece here in a quick second. Is, are there any more sanctuaries that you folks are aware of that are being planned at this point? There are a number of sanctuaries for elephants in the world, like the Global Sanctuary for Elephants in Brazil. There's Elephant Nature Park in Thailand. There's Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary. There are elephant sanctuaries in different regions. In mm -hmm. the US, there's the Tennessee Elephant Sanctuary and PAWS. Uh, Performing Animal Welfare Society is what PAWS stands for. They take in have to wrap it up there but again we'd love to get your thoughts on the future of elephants at the albuquerque biopark zoo do you think it's uh, that we should continue to have those animals do we need to look at, at a point in time when specifically with elephants and the, the toll that these small enclosures can take on them the new research do we need to rethink how we do things and again you can drop us a line here or reach out on twitter or instagram or facebook even YouTube, let us know what you think. And that'll do it for now. We're already hard at work on a bunch of new stuff for you for this coming week. Until our next episode, again, I thank you as your host, Kevin McDonald of New Mexico PBS. I'm an executive producer here. We appreciate your support. And as always, for listening in. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.